a small note before we begin. This sermon will sound a little different than the sermon you heard on Sunday if you were uh, at the service or joining by Zoom. That's because unfortunately uh, that sermon did not take to the recording. So I'm recording this again, uh, preaching especially uh, for those uh, tuning in online or via the podcast. This morning the scripture reading is going to be from John chapter 4 verses 1 through 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will teach us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he.
Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered in to their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we're looking at John chapter 4, a very well-known story. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of John, looking at these conversations between creator and created. And today we get to look at the very well-known story of the Samaritan woman. And I want to I start us off first by looking at some of the, the major imagery in this story and laying the groundwork for some of the, the themes. John is a writer who works in themes. And so the first theme that he lays out is this theme of a well, of water in the wilderness. I was on uh, the computer the, about a year ago, and a YouTube advertisement came up for wells in Africa. YouTube has these algorithms. They must have pegged me. Uh, maybe they knew I was moving into the pastor and I was going to be interested in world missions or whatever. I don't know why this came up. But they, had, they, they put on this ad. And it was this incredible story about this man who had, who had tried to make it big in the club scene in New York. Right? He was climbing to the top. And that's what he was after. He was after being the coolest, wealthiest, most connected guy. And then his whole life falls apart. He finds himself next to an infinity pool. And everybody's snorting crack, right? And he's around all of these who's who's. And it's just this debauched party. And he wakes up one morning after all of this and he says, This is empty. I don't... I don't want to be a part of this. I don't know why I decided to go after this. This doesn't have any meaning. And so he began to reinvent his life from the ground up. And he started this initiative to plant, uh, to, to bring clean water to all these places across Africa. And he begins this organization that some of you may know called Charity Water. You may have seen the hats, Charity Colon Water. 
celebrities where he touched because what this guy had done is he had taken those connections that he all had and as he had reinvented his life looking for some kind of meaning he had reconnected all of these famous people to this really important initiative of bringing clean water now most of us in portland are, are so used to our water we wouldn't even think about it we have the, some of the cleanest water it comes from mountain reservoirs but would you believe that 11 percent of the global population 780 million people go without clean water every day water is a big deal water in a place where you can't have it getting clean water having a well is a big deal and so it made me think of, of this idea of wells. And if we're looking at the ancient Near East, this is a place that we consider a pretty arid, dry place when you think about it. That there were areas where the well was going to be the place of gathering, the place where you could bring life out of nothing, that you could draw it up out of the earth. And I was thinking that these sites actually, in a way, represent God's providence. They represent this sense that even among the most inhospitable places in a broken post-Eden world, that God's providence is there through these wells that draw water out and up for us to drink. Water is the, the most essential component of living even more important than food. And here these wells represent this providential grace of God. But in the Hebrew narrative, in the Hebrew narrative, wells mean even more than that. Wells are a common site for a marriage or a betrothal, an engagement. Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 24. Jacob and Rachel meet at a well in Genesis 29. And then moving forward to Exodus, Moses and his wife Zipporah meet at a well in Midian. So these wells, lest you think it's just circumstance that, that maybe one or two betrothals have a well, we see three stories close together in, in some of the most formative, the two most formative books in the Old Testament, the books that are repeated and retold over and over again, where these wells are these marriage sites. So I want us today to, to challenge you to think of this story as you're hearing this story carry itself out and the narrative weave its way through. Think of it as a betrothal, as a marriage, as an engagement site. So how does our story start? Well, we see that it begins with this battle over baptisms that we cited last week. And then we see that Jesus had no interest. He had no, he had no desire for John the Baptist's ministry to be somehow sidelined or made more difficult by there being some competition between his baptisms and John the Baptist. He said, that's not what I'm about. So it says, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And he had to pass through. Those are key words. Now, there's two reasons that you might go through Samaria to get to Galilee. The first is it's just simply the shorter route. If you look at a, a map of the region, in order to go around Samaria you would have to take and make your trip three times as long. So it was just practical to take the shortest route. 
But of course, a lot of Jews would have taken the long route because they simply didn't want to be anywhere near Samaritans. Uh, Samaria has an ugly backstory within Jewish culture. In the Samaritan history between Jews and, and Samarians, we have some key stories where we can begin to see how this became so ugly. And the first one is this. It, maybe you remember in our series on Nehemiah, there was this character Sanballat. Sanballat was sort of the antagonist, nemesis character. And, and, and at some point in the story, there's a renegade uh, Jewish man whose daughter marries the daughter of Sanballat, blending a Yahweh into the Samaritan gods, bringing him into their pantheon of gods. Which, of course, if you know anything about Jewish uh, tradition and religion, Yahweh is the one and only God. So to bring Yahweh into a pantheon was utter blasphemy. And then what transpires is this, this history of Samaritans and Jews in conflict with each other up to the point that 160 years prior to Jesus' ministry, there was something called the Maccabean Revolt where Judas Maccabeus comes through and he cleanses the Jewish temples and he goes and he cleanses the whole region, even going to a Samaritan temple and leveling it, destroying the temple, creating and exacerbating this bitter blood feud that was between the Samaritans and the Jews. So a righteous Samaritan, or a righteous Jew, excuse me, would head around Samaria. They would want nothing to do with that. That would look bad for them to go through Samaria. And of course, there were some businessmen and more practical people who did go through Samaria. And so it's interesting that Jesus made the choice to travel through Samaria to get to Galilee. He makes a statement just in that. A rabbi who is willing to be like maybe some of the practical businessmen. And here he goes traveling through Samaria. But there's also something else interesting about this phrase. Commentators uh, write about this line, had to. And they suggest that there's some spirit-led compulsion. That there's something about the way that this sentence is constructed, where we can see that Jesus, who we know in the Trinitarian God nature of Jesus, Father, and Spirit, that Jesus, while he was God, also took commands from the Most High God, the Father. And that Jesus had to, felt compelled by the Spirit and by the Father, that he saw no other way to do it except to head through Samaria to Galilee. And I think this is an important theme to understand in this story. That there is a divine reason that Jesus is moving through this untouchable place full of bitter feuding. Then it says in verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour in the story would have been right around 12 noon, what we would call high noon. We understand the symbolism of high noon, don't we? It's, 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 it's an item in every Western story. That at high noon is always a place of 
of change, of conflict, of transformation. And you can imagine Clint Eastwood walking out, the camera shot between his legs, looking out from his boots in the duel at the enemy across the way. You can imagine a tumbleweed rolling across and spaghetti western music playing in the dry heat we're at the sixth hour and the sun is shining directly down. And what do we see? Not Clint Eastwood standing for a duel, but a tired Jesus leaning on a well. A tired Jesus. How is it that Jesus can be tired? Here we get a taste for John's view of Jesus, who is fully the Son of God, but is also fully man which is such a beautiful way to picture and understand Jesus, that we can have these stories in which we see he's tired enough to literally sit maybe on the side of the well, just as we would do if we were just exhausted, thirsty, ready for a drink. N.T. Wright writes, he's a well-known theologian, he writes about this idea of Jesus being fully man and yet fully God, and he says this, he said, he was in the full image of Israel. That Jesus was in the full image of Israel. Just think about that for a second. That Jesus becoming fully man means that he is taking on a body that is, that is brought from a time leaving the garden. Where we have these broken bodies that are forced to work the ground and get tired. And Jesus has the country carpenter in him. The tired wayfarer in him. And so there is some association we can make with Jesus with understanding the line of Adam through the journey of Israel out of slavery through the wilderness that Jesus gets this what it feels like because he lives in a body that feels it. And yet Jesus is also a teacher rabbi. He is also what Nicodemus would consider a fellow teacher just like him a Pharisee. He's a righteous man, and he represents the righteousness. But he doesn't represent the broken righteousness of those in Israel who are trying to be priests. He, rec he represents the very priesthood, God in man. And in that, he is not shackled by these broken aspects of the body, but he is the full image of the Redeemer. So knowing that he is the full image, we can see that there is some necessity for him to live in a tired body. And in this story, that there is some working out in divine providence and intention for him to be tired by the side of the well. So that he can most fully be a redeemer. Okay, so we've set the story. We've painted out our leading man. We've painted out our scene at high noon. Now let's throw in the match. Let's talk about our leading lady. We know how the story goes, many of us, right? This woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now we need to mention this. When she came to draw water, she's coming to, to a field where Jacob's well is. And it's near a place called Sychar, but it's at a fork in the road. And so what's happening at this fork in the road, I'm imagining, uh, is that this, this map, if you look at it as a map, this fork, one direction is going into town, and the other is continuing up towards Galilee. They stop at the fork at this well, and the disciples head into town to get food on their pit stop. This is sort of just a pit stop necessity 
stop to get food. We don't really want to be in Samaria. We've just got to venture in. Jesus, why don't you actually stay out here? This is not in town. In fact, there's closer water sources in town than this. And so when this Samaritan woman comes to draw water, she is coming out of her way, out of town, to some well that's going to have nobody around. And she's not just coming to an empty well. She's coming in the middle of the day when no one in their right mind would come to a well. High noon, the hottest point of the day? No way. You come to a well in the morning. You come in the cool of the day. And here comes this woman to draw water. Imagine this well as like a not cool dive bar. Now I have to say not cool because in Portland a dive bar, there's a lot of hipster dive bars. There's a lot of really desirable places to go that have this, this, this image of a cool place. No, imagine a not cool dive bar. Uh, I knew one of these growing up in my hometown. I lived in a small town. And there was this bar that had no windows. That growing up it was like you never wanted to be in there. The bar's name was McFeely's. Jesus is at a well, and the Samaritan woman is coming to a well that is like McFeely's at a Tuesday at 2 p.m. Who's going to be in a bar like McFeely's on Tuesday at 2 p.m.? You don't want to know. This is not a desirable place to be. And here, who do we find in McFeely's on a Tuesday at 2 p.m.? But Jesus and a Samaritan woman. That's the only two people that are there. And I want to make an argument for who this Samaritan woman is. We've tend to been told this story. And at least I have identified and understood that the Samaritan woman's like a woman that she's had five husbands because she sleeps around, because she's difficult to get along with, because she's a diva. But I want to make an argument for a minute that the Samaritan woman is what we would call a battered woman. That this is a woman who has been abused, verbally abused, emotionally abused and manipulated taken to advantage of, perhaps physically abused. It makes sense in the tone of how she talks, in the way that she defends herself, in the sort of calloused uh, outer shell, but deeply sensitive inside, that the Samaritan woman is, I want to I encourage you to take the read, that we would tend to judge her. At least I would, as a man, tend to maybe place judgment that she's had five husbands and paint that a certain direction and put my bias on it. But I want you for a, a minute to take a new angle that Jesus is sitting down in McFeely's at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday with a battered woman. And in doing so, Jesus, teacher, rabbi, righteous man, taking the route through Samaria, sitting down at this particular well with this particular woman is going against the grain. He has entered into injustice. And we will find that in this story we see Jesus as a barrier breaker. That Jesus is a man who comes in and he takes the social constructions and the rules and he breaks them down. Because there would have been three strikes for him that would have easily been able to dismiss this whole interaction. There's, there's easily three things where Jesus could just step up from this well and walk away. The first is that this is a Samaritan. We've talked about that at length. William Barclay writes this, a commentator writes this about uh, a rabbi. 
and what they did with a particular Samaritan. This is a true story. It is told that a rabbi, Jochanan, was passing through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem to pray. He passed by Mount Gerizim. A Samaritan saw him and asked him, Where are you going? I'm going to Jerusalem, he said, to pray. The Samaritan answered, Would it not be better for you to pray in this holy mountain than in that accursed house? Speaking of Jerusalem. So there was, there was a sense that even in speaking to rabbis in this place, that people had a gleeful self-righteousness, that they considered their site the true sites, the true holy sites. Why would you go and pray in Jerusalem when we have the holy mountain? We, the Samaritans, have the holy mountain of Yahweh. So many rabbis would have not only gone around, they would have just thumbed their nose at the idea that they would even want to associate with Samaritans. And here is Jesus with a Samaritan. Strike two. This is a woman. It would have been a rabbi's custom not to talk to a woman. Barclay again, he says this. Listen to this. He says, the strict rabbis forbade a rabbi to greet a woman in public. A rabbi might not even speak to his own wife or daughter or sister in public. There were even Pharisees who were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they shut their eyes when they saw a woman on the street, and so walked into walls and houses. For a rabbi to be seen speaking to a woman in public was the end of his reputation. And yet, Jesus spoke to a woman. Strike three. This is a woman without a man at all. I don't need to talk about this at length. But you can see that this is a woman who had every reason for a righteous man to judge her. If we had Nicodemus in chapter three, walking up to this woman at the well, he was a ruler and a judge. He would have been able to make, he would have made proper conclusions and socially acceptable responses that would have been right in the eyes of those around him who agreed with him. And we, he would have found her wanting and he would have seen there's no reason I have to have anything to do with her. She has made mistakes and she deserves the results she's going to get from them. I should not look at her. I should not talk to her. She is an unrighteous person. But Jesus breaks through the barriers of even that. Now, if you were living at the time with Nicodemus, you very well may agree with Nicodemus that this is a woman that's at the bottom of the, of the social ladder, that's the bottom of the barrel. And you might even say to yourself, but that person doesn't deserve those things. Look at what they've done with their life. But Jesus says this. It says, it doesn't make her any less deserving of love. That it doesn't make her any less deserving of my sympathy and true compassion. In fact, the commentator Frederick Bruner says this, Perhaps Jesus had to go through Samaria to show that it was wrong not to have much to do with any cultural group. And so I want to challenge us as an application here as we're listening to this story, that we often wash our hands of conflict saying, when Jesus comes again, he will make all things right, and therefore excusing ourselves of the brokenness of the world. This is nothing more than a form of Christian cynicism. I want to say this again. This is nothing more than a form of Christian cynicism. Cynicism is a lack of faith or hope in the other's motives. And I think there is a sense of faithlessness and hope that we become cynical 
and we simply say, I can't trust what other people do, and so I'm not going to waste my time on it. I, I can't even figure this out. I'm going to let Jesus take care of this when he comes back, and I'm going to wash my hands of this. In a way, this cynicism is lifting our hand from the plow and abdicating our response to persist through the tension. Jesus is getting in with a mess. He's not saying this is broken and too complicated and you can't fix this. Five husbands! And he steps into it and begins to break down the barriers. And what does Jesus do? What is the first thing that he does? He says, give me a drink. Jesus believes, just as we should believe, that we are to be small points of light where we can, when we can, as we can. And so he addresses her. He gives her attention. But also he does something surprising here. As Frederick Bruner, the commentator, says, momentarily, by asking, he is socially putting himself under her as anyone who asks is. This is surprising and counterintuitive. As a, as a barrier breaker, as a bringer of justice and love, Jesus actually starts with a command asking something of somebody. But you'll notice, this puts the Samaritan woman in an interesting position. He's not shoveling out uh, alms for the poor with pity. He's not giving her something and making her feel like she's needy and useless and has no ability to get it on her own. Instead, he's giving her dignity. He is saying this. He is saying, even you, a Samaritan, is worthy of my speech. And the things you give me, I will take. They're worthy of me to drink. Which is a big deal for a rabbi in Samaria. For any Jew in Samaria to eat Samaritan food or things served by Samaritans, I think there, there is a yuck factor associated with that, a cultural religious yuck factor. You wouldn't do that. And yet Jesus says, you, a Samaritan woman, are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And so he takes her into relationship with him, not by taking pity and serving her, but instead, seeing that she has skills herself, he asks her to serve him, to bring her first dignity and pride. Now, if that doesn't convict you, how many times as we are serving, do we simply end at pity? keeping the interaction short because we're afraid of asking for some kind of service or long-term involvement. I think of ways that we can ask to create dignity and people to serve us, perhaps employing somebody off the street, perhaps fostering. There are other ways that you bring, and then you endure the pain and the messiness and the barrier breaking of long-term dignity building, of allowing the spirit through these interactions that are going to be tough for you and not just easy for you, like giving some money away but are going to be a long-term challenge and a process of discipleship and building and dignity creation that only the Spirit can bring. Bruner says this, he says, Serving usually arouses the resistance of pride, but asking for help calls people into fellowship. Serving arouses a resistance of pride. When you're asked to serve, when you, when you are served something, you get this feeling, I can do it. I've got two hands. There's a feeling that said the other person actually kind of is more powerful than you when you're served by somebody. It can be hard. Gosh, I can attest you guys to times in our own, Megan and I's own sort of uh, relationship building, 
in which it has had by far the most fruit when we allow people to come in and help us. When we ask for their help and they come and they serve us. And then we see beautiful relationship that points to Jesus come out of it. But of course, it doesn't come right away. There's a little work. Remember, we're in the mess. And so in verse 9, this is what happens. Jesus is greeted with suspicion. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? Not unlike Nicodemus, when Jesus brings, begins to bring the gospel to him. Remember what Nicodemus says? How can I be born again? How can, how can a man go back into the womb? See, John knows this. John tells us how to read these stories and these interactions. He knows, he tells us how it will look when the gospel begins to be brought. In chapter 1, he paints these themes in large brushstrokes so we can begin to read the stories. And he says this, he says, The light came into the darkness, but the darkness did not receive them. See, the world loves it some world. And when we come in as agents of light in any way, as small points of light, certainly when Jesus comes in as the light, at first the darkness will not receive him. So there is some suspicion from the woman with the well. There's some suspicion from Nicodemus. Because what Jesus is bringing is counter to everything the world screams at us. For Nicodemus, it was a challenge to go lower than he was willing to go. To start over after having PhD and doctorate. For the woman at the well, it's to be interacting in a completely socially inappropriate way. To break through these barriers that she knew she had no business and no power to change. And yet Jesus is coming and he's shredding those barriers. The dark, in the, living in the darkness, we want to believe that the world is our only form of survival. It is hard when you live in the visible to see the invisible underneath it. But that's what Jesus says. He is a visible man, tired by the well, but invisible God working to connect us down to the creator of everything that transcends all time in every interaction. He's drawing us into a vision where we can begin to glimpse out of the visible into the invisible. Sometimes it seems totally counterintuitive. Let me give you an example of that. In verse 10, Jesus answered her to her question, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria. And he answers this. He says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this is one of those lines that if you just hear it said by Jesus, if you just read this line, you go, Wait a second. She just asked him a question and he didn't answer the question at all. She asked, How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. And then he answers her, if you knew the gift of God. That's not, that's not answering the question. He says, you should be asking me for a drink of water. What? This is what we call a, a non sequitur. This is, this is where, uh, you know a non sequitur. A non sequitur is where you're having a conversation with, with a buddy, right? And suddenly they go from talking about one thing to seems like a completely different subject. Now they're talking about something totally different. Now, in their minds, the two things have been connected. They've tangentially connected the two, but you've lost them in the middle of it. 
That's a non sequitur, right? You've said, wait, I don't get how part A relates to part B. And they're just continuing on because to them it all makes sense. To them it all plugs together. When Jesus is talking here, yes, it seems alien at first because Jesus sees something we don't see. And he is making actually a completely logical answer to her question. He's saying, what is the way that we explain this to you? What is the way that I get you from where I want you, where you are to where I want you? to redemption. How do I get you there? It's going to take this non sequitur. It's going to take actually challenging your first question and answering with a different response. Essentially what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, stop, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. How many times when we come to Jesus do we come in prayer, come asking, come expecting, and we don't get what we're asking for? We're like this woman at the well saying, how can you, how can this be happening? And Jesus responds not with an answer to our question, but with a different question. How many times is Jesus saying to us, you're asking the wrong question? Because let's be honest, a lot of us, our prayers amount to this, how can I be safe and right? We want to be doing the right thing and be as comfortable as possible doing it. We want to be fitting within the cultural norms and the political boundaries. We want to keep our friend groups and avoid the cultural taboos. We want to abide by the protocols. If we identify as a Democrat, we want to have democratic behavior. If we identify with a Republican, we want to fit all the Republican behavior. Everything with a safe and unsafe social behaviors. And Jesus says... You're asking the wrong question. How can I be safe and right? He says this. He gives this response. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew who you were talking to, is what he's saying, you would be asking for so much more. And you would be given it. How glorious is this response? It can only be said in our prayer that we don't know what we don't know sometimes. And Jesus reminds us, he says, I'm going to tell you what you need to know. I'm going to tell you the invisible underneath the visible that makes it all make sense. And here it is. This response is such a beautiful response. In fact, many commentators have looked at this and they've said, this is the most explicit explanation of the gospel in the book of John. Perhaps the most, if not the second most. Second, the first most might be this. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? That's a, a very clear presentation of the gospel. But listen to this presentation. If you knew the generosity, the gift, if you knew the generous God, and who it is right now that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, another translation for this, fresh spring water. How can we figure out, how can we identify what the gospel is in this section? Well, we have a few different points that we can, we can note. One, the gospel is a drink of water in the wilderness. 
It's given to you right now. As I'm proclaiming this to you, as you're listening to this, the gospel is given to you from a generous God. It can be given even from a Jew to a Samaritan. There's no greater social boundary that could have been crossed, and it can transcend it. It can be given from God, a perfect, unchanging, holy God, to humanity. There's no greater boundary that can be crossed. And it quenches all thirst. We find out in verse 14. But whoever drinks of that water I give him will never be thirsty. Again, it's living water. It clenches all thirst. And so what is her response after this suspicion? How does she diverge from Nicodemus in chapter 3? What does she do next? She says this. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She asks. The proper response, the contrast between these two characters, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at the well. She asks. When we ask the wrong questions and get a different question, and get a different answer, a different command, the only thing we have to do to receive that gospel is to ask, please give it to me. And we find that the gospel is the answer, ironically, to both of these different characters, to Nicodemus and the Samaritan. It's the answer to the right heritage. If you're Jewish, it's still the answer. Even if you have everything right, the gospel is the only answer to the only real question, how can I be saved? And it's the only real answer to the wrong heritage, that of the Samaritan. The only answer to both of these is Jesus. It's the only answer to right thinking, what we call orthodoxy. Nicodemus was orthodox. Everything was perfect at right angles, all of it lined up. And yet that doesn't bring him salvation. The only answer is Jesus to orthodoxy. And the only answer to wrong thinking, to heterodoxy, to having everything sideways and messed up like the Samaritans, is Jesus. So here we have our leading man and our leading lady. And a proposal of sorts has just happened. And now we're at a turning point. She has asked, she said, give me this water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. Even here, we see something so profound and barrier-breaking. What is happening here? Jesus, God, who knows all and everything there is to know, still in his social placement, in his human form, assumes the best. There's a common adage, and forgive my language here, but there's a common adage about assuming, right? Assuming makes an ass out of you and me. Jesus knew this. Jesus does not assume when he's in a socially awkward situation, when we, he feels he may have the upper hand or be in the right, as any, as any rabbi, Jewish rabbi would think, encounter a Samaritan woman. Unlike Nicodemus, Jesus is a breaker of barriers, not an upholder of barriers. Jesus leads by thinking the best possible thing. It would have been the natural thing for a woman making an important decision that he knows she is making, a spiritually significant decision, 
So he says, look, the proposal you've just made, give me this living water so I will not be thirsty. That's a, a gravity of a proposal that you need to go and get your husband and have him come make with you. So Jesus takes this dignified, proper, high-minded, uh, a high sense of value for her. And he says, here is the best way to do this. The most loving way to do this is go get your husband and come here. And the woman answers honestly. And she says the painful words, I have no husband. At that point, maybe the jig is up for her. Maybe the living water doesn't become hers. But she's honest and she says, I am broken. And Jesus, knowing her, says, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. That's how Jesus will always respond to us. He always comes in a gentle and loving way. He always, no matter the circumstances and the responses to our prayers and our wrong questions, he comes and seeks us to bring us back to him. And he lets us deal with the reality of what we know. Jesus isn't shaming her here, even though shame may bubble up within her. But that shame is from her own sins or from her own life circumstances. But Jesus assumes the best and lets her respond. And how does she respond? She fawns and she feigns and she dances around. She's uncomfortable. She, like us, so badly wants to avoid conflict. She wants to be somebody. She fawns. She says, I perceive that you're a prophet, right? She says, let me use some flattery. I can see that you're, can I get out of this conversation if I just show that you're a really good guy and then I can take off? And she feigns. She dodges and she says, look, here's, here's what I know. Let me show you what I know about the, the Samaritans and the Jews and where the worship sites are and how it's supposed to be. This whole paragraph, I don't have time to get into all of this. But it's a complex discussion around some very culturally embedded ideas of what is right religion. What are the, 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 the cultural understandings of what should be. And she, used, she steps behind those because she's scared of being known truly, deeply. And Jesus is continuing as a barrier breaker to wade through that mess with her. And what Jesus will do is he will explode her worldview as she dances around looking for ways to hide and step behind knowledge or use flattery to get out of the very real reality that she must face a certain level of brokenness and shame. Jesus will stay there lovingly speaking to her as she does all of that nonsense. And Jesus just continues to wade through the mess with her, patiently answering her questions and steering her to the invisible underneath the visible, driving to the core question, to the core answer of the gospel, to an irrefutable truth that is going to drive a knife through it and forever change her what her response is to this. She says, I know that there's a Christ coming. And Jesus said to her, Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. You're looking right at him. You're looking at the Messiah. 
And so I want to return to our application about Christian cynicism, this idea that, well, when Jesus comes someday, all will be right. Jesus came. He moved into the neighborhood. Jesus is right next to us in the room as we are listening to this right now. He is here. He's standing next to you in a McFeely's at Tuesday at 2 p.m., and you are the person in that bar with him. And he's come to you. And he is saying to you right now, no matter where you are in your life, no matter what you think, you must know this. I who speak to you from the invisible bubbling into the visible am the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of all things. And in this moment, he makes himself higher than any of her perspectives and visions. She, has, she states that about Jacob, the patriarch who made this well. She says, are you greater than him? He says, I am greater than the greatest thing you can imagine. It is the same explosion that happens when God booms over Job. Remember, Job and his suffering is calling out to God. He's saying, who are you and why would you do this? And God booms over him and he says, I created the foundations of the earth. It's that same spirit when Jesus says, I am he. And yet I am also gentle and lowly enough to put myself under you to ask you to serve me, to bring me water. Gosh, Jesus rattles her to her very core. And then in his love, he expands her horizons. And as we talked about back in chapter 1, going through this idea that he opens heaven. He opens up the possibilities to her. Her, a Samaritan woman with five husbands. Her, in the dive bar. Lost at the end of the road. And he opens everything up in new possibilities because of his gospel, because of his messiahship, because of his love for her. And he says this, this, this is from the message, and this is verses 23 and 24 paraphrased, how he responds right before he admits his messiahship. He says, it's you who are, and the way you live, so it's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the king of people the Father is looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, and their true selves in adoration. And in this moment, Jesus is exploding how salvation is available. He says, it's, it's not available in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The Jews and the Samaritans, neither one of them is right. Everything you've heard, guess what? It's better, it's greater, it's more available than you've ever been told. My death, my hour, he says, which is the way Jesus talks about his cross. My hour is coming. When it will explode and everything you ever imagined about the gospel, you will find that it's better than you've ever been told. 
And now we have one of the most filmic moments of this whole story. This beautiful confluence. This, okay, it's like this. Remember, with this marriage proposal, this idea, in a movie, when the two people lean in, the boyfriend and girlfriend lean in, the, the engaged couple lean in for the kiss. And what happens? The kid walks out. The bumbling disciples walk into the scene just as they're leaning forward to this point where all of the puzzle pieces are connecting together, when everything's finally making sense, when she's, she's got all of these feelings in her. And the disciples come back, and they're just back from their pit stop out of town, right? And they're like, hey, uh, got some food for you, Jesus. And they come up, and they're silent. And it says, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? There was something palpable in the air of this exchange, of this epiphany of the gospel. And you can imagine the Samaritan woman in this role just have been proposed to. To have the world opened up to her and have all of this beauty of the gospel showering over her, turning her heart in knots, flummoxed, confused, twitterpated. And what happens? She leaves her jar. She sees this awkward social situation. Here's some more Jewish guys coming up, and I'm a Samaritan woman. She just leaves the jar, and she goes into town. And you can imagine in this line in 28 where it says, And went away into town and said to the people, I imagine quite a bit of time passes as she's going into town. That it's all settling in, and everything's starting to gel and make sense, and what was good is just feeling greater She's bursting at the seams. Jesus promised her that she would have living water that would well up from underneath her. And what is the next thing she does? She goes to the people of town, probably who want nothing to do with her. People that she would have no reason to ever talk to. People that she was avoiding by going to the well. And she gushes to them. She says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Probably my most favorite line in all of the Gospels. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Savior of the world? N.T. Wright again says this. He says, Jesus sometimes doesn't answer or answers with a different question in our prayers to get us to ask the right question. When Jesus comes in and presents himself as real, the right question for us to ask is, what would that mean for me if God is real? If Jesus is the Messiah, what would that change in my life? What if the answer to every question really is Jesus? And what if he doesn't just know you or know about you and is off doing something else in the universe right now, some people believe about God, but that he is present and next to you and deeply loves you and is giving you this free gift of love available at any moment for you to take. What does that mean for everything you've been doing and everything you will do? So remember the well. Remember this Hebrew narrative device. Multiple times in the Hebrew narrative how these are a betrothal site. 
Well, Carissa Quinn at the Bible Project, which is a fantastic uh, Bible reading resource based in Portland, talks about this, analyzing these different stories. She says they all have these elements in common. She says this, there's always a woman at the well, whether it's Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. At these betrothal engagement moments, there is always a woman. He says there is always a drawing of water. There's always somebody who's drawing water. In this case, the woman's asked to draw the water, but who is it that maybe draws the real water? Maybe that's Jesus who draws the living water. And then there's news. There's always a point at which the women go quickly home and tell their father or tell somebody about this event that just happened, about this amazing surprise. And then the fourth element is that there's always hospitality. And now that's interesting. You might say, where is that in this story? In Moses and Zipporah, he's invited to dinner and stays with Jethro and Zipporah's family. Where is the hospitality in this story? In verse 39, if we skip over this, we'll return to this section, 31 through 38. Verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there for two days. This even has a hospitality element. And then the last part of it, the part that's so crucial here in this story, is that there was always a joining. In the case of Moses and Zipporah, where Zipporah is given to Moses as his wife. Carissa writes this. She says about this joining, that there's a different kind of marriage here. She says, so when Jesus meets a woman at the well, readers are expected some kind of marriage bond to result. But rather than one woman becoming married, she convinces many people in her community to follow her and join themselves with Jesus. This joining is the final element of the well-meeting pattern and is framed as a bond between two parties. In fact, Jesus is referred to as the groom in the chapter just before. Remember last week in chapter 3, talking about the bridegroom. However, this is a different kind of bond than a marriage between two people. Jesus' message to the woman and her people is that he, the Messiah, is offering true life, living water, to anyone who would join themselves with him. Just like the waters that flowed out of Eden from the tree of life, so Jesus is offering life to all who would unite themselves with him in a symbolic and everlasting union. This gushing water from within. And I was also struck by another story deepening the significance of this to me. So I read, I'm reading through the Bible. Uh, I read, I try and read through four different sections kind of at the same time to sort of get this sweep over the Bible. I'm trying it again. I'm not always doing great at it. But right now I'm, I'm going through Exodus and I just hit Exodus chapter 15. And it's interesting uh, that, that John is retelling in his Gospels, he's telling formational elements from Genesis and Exodus over and over again. The whole Bible actually is retelling these stories from Genesis and Exodus. But Genesis and Exodus, so what happens in Exodus 15 is that the, the children of Israel, if you recall the story of Pharaoh and the plagues, 
Pharaoh has just, Moses has just taken his people from slavery out across the miraculous opening of the Red Sea. And there's something happened here that I never caught before when I was reading uh, this passage. That as he's leaving out of the Red Sea, God directs him out into the wilderness. He's directed strategically into the desert. Now think about this. The reason is because if they had gone straight up along the coastline, which is what definitely would have made the most sense empirically from the, the visible element of what you can see, it's by far the most sensible thing to do is go along that coastline where food will grow well, where you're near water sources. But what would happen is they would run immediately into the Philistines, which were a coastal wayfaring tribe who would have had military ready to just butcher these former slaves to death. It would have been a disaster if they had gone by what they could see. And so God does something strategic. He pulls them into the desert. But it, it now flips sides. If you look at this from the Philistines and the Egyptians' point of view, they're just laughing. They're saying, oh my gosh, they, they, should, they, they should go a place where they can get food and water, and we've got them covered. They're just literally going off into the desert to their death. Well, good riddance. Man, that was easier than we thought. Now they're just all going to die of starvation and thirst. And yet look at the strategy that God has of coordinating and bringing them into a place that visibly makes no sense for them to be at. And so that gets us to this section that I want to bring and relate to this story of the Samaritan woman at the well. So I'll read just this section of Exodus 15 for a minute. Moses had brought the people out of Israel. It says in verse 22, Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, or in some translations, a tree. And he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. Now, when I read this story for a minute, it just made no sense to me. It was one of these Old Testament stories where things just don't really line up. And you go, what? I, what? He had him throw a log into the water? And that's like some mystical thing that healed the water? Until I realized all of Scripture should be read towards Christ. That's what we call a Christocentric reading. That the Bible all points to Jesus. And what is a tree or a log if not the cross that sweetens the water. Now it makes sense. Now God's command to throw the log into the water makes sense. It is, it, it is looking forward to Jesus' hour when the bitter water will be turned sweet as it was in this story with the Samaritan woman, as it is for us right now as we hear the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, the famous London Baptist preacher, preached this sermon, and I'll just read a short excerpt on Easter morning, 1871. He said, speaking of the Israelites in the wilderness, he says, When they cut down the tree and put it into the water, it turned the water sweet. They could drink of it. And let me assure you that in the case of our trouble, the cross is the most effective sweetener. Shall I put the tree into the water for a minute and then ask you to drink? 
Have you been suffering pain or any other form of tribulation? I will lay the cross, a soak for it in a minute, and your first reflection will be, in all this that I am called to suffer, there is not even a single particle of punishment for my sin. God has punished Christ. Consequently, he cannot punish me. To punish two for one offense would be unjust. Therefore, there is nothing penal in all this that I am suffering. I do not know of any reflection more consoling than this, that my sorrow is not laid on me by a judge, nor inflicted on me as the result of divine anger. There is not a drop of wrath in a river full of a believer's grief. Hear that. Does not that take the bitterness out of affliction and make it sweet? And then the reflection goes further. Since Christ has died for me, I am God's dear child. And now if I suffer, all my suffering comes from my Father's hand, nay more from my Father's heart. He loves me and therefore makes me suffer, not because he does not love, but because he does love. And does he thus afflict me? In every stripe I see another token of paternal, fatherly love. This is to sweeten Mara's water indeed psalm 42 says it says as the deer pants for water so my soul longs for thee all worldly springs will be bitter they will run dry as the woman saw after her fifth husband that all of it eventually became muddy and sour and dirty and that it is only when her soul began to long and see that Jesus was the true living water that gushed up out of her as a free eternal gift, that she was truly liberated, that the sweetness that God brings in the water when his cross is thrown into that Mara bitter water, like it was for the Israelites, is that we are totally liberated in its goodness, its gentleness, in how it gives us dignity, as we've seen. It's totally sweet in its authority. We've talked a lot about that in our church, how it's important to see the preeminence and the authority and how God is greater than us. But most of all, it's sweet in its love for us. That if we see this story as a marriage, as the beginning of God, not just Jesus not bringing himself just to the Samaritan woman, but to the whole body of believers, what will become the church, his followers, that we are the bride of Christ. Then we will see something so beautiful in the gospel that maybe we have not seen before. Now, where does that bring us? I want to circle back quickly to verse 31 through 38. In this section, there's a sort of in-between, why is this in the story? I'm circling back to show us that there is real deep significance. My temptation was to skip over this in preaching, but there's deep significance to why this is here. Verse 31 says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? All right, so all the disciples are concerned about at this moment. This Samaritan town, this Sychar well, this crossroads, it was all just a necessary pit stop and kind of an ugly boondock place that they don't want to be at. They don't want to be at McFeely's right now. 
They have no desire to be there. They know that's not a good place to be. They know there's not good people in there. And they want to move on and get to the point. This is a distraction for their life. This is sidetracking them. And I want to urge us right now to step into the shoes of the disciples for a second and see how we can sometimes see the pandemic right now as a distraction. And let us see Jesus' response. They said, come on, the whole point here was to eat. Did somebody already give you something to eat? And Jesus said, then my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What's Jesus saying here? What's his response? He's saying, no. The harvest is white. The fields are white for harvest right now. When we think about the moment we're in as lost time, as a pit stop, we are losing chances for the harvest. There's an illustration I heard that every culture is like a pair of glasses. So when we adopt a cultural framework, we're putting on the glasses and we're seeing everything through that lens. So when we adopt this framework and this cultural understanding that this is what the pandemic means and this is what we need to do for it, we are wearing cultural glasses that help us see that. Jesus says, put on a Jesus culture. A Jesus way of seeing the world and see it the way I see it. You saw destitute Samaritans. You saw a place that is ugly and nothing you want to have anything to do with. I see fields white for harvest. You're all consumed with thinking about in four months, six months, eight months, 12 months. I know when the pandemic hit, it was suddenly like, let's just get by and survive and get some food at the pit stop that is my life right now. And let's aim for a year out when Jesus is going to have harvest for again when the pandemic is up. When there will be things for us to do and ways to serve and ways to help and ways to show the gospel and ways to care for people. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you would have missed the whole point. In fact, you guys did miss the whole point. You missed the beauty of what just happened here. There was white fields for harvest at the well. And look at the fruit that comes from them. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, verse 39. And so Jesus is again calling his disciples, just as he called the woman to faith, a deeper trust in his word over their worldly experience. And that is how Jesus does his barrier breaking. That is how the living water gushes from within. Here we see the effect of what happens when people are convinced of the invisible, the creator God, who is talking to them and his preeminence and his sweetness and his goodness. Here's what they do. It says in verse 41, many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know indeed that this is the savior of the world. We see right in this verse that there is such power in the confession of Christ and that the Spirit along with us as we share him continues to do the work. 
And that in that way, Christ comes alongside new people and they begin to know him just as this woman does, just as you and I, I pray, are today. Let's pray. God, I pray that there would be a freshness in the way that we have experienced and seen the gospel today. I pray that there would be a conviction that there is an action for us, not just an asking, but there is a going forth, that there is a new way of seeing that we have that comes out of this. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for us. Thank you for the giving the gospel freely. You are so generous. In Jesus' name, amen.